This week on Q&A, University of Pennsylvania Law School professor Amy Wax. Professor Wax talks about the limits of free expression on college campuses in the United States. Amy Wax, before I ask you questions about why we ask you to come here, I want to go through your background. Where are you from? I was raised, born and raised in Troy, New York, which is a small city north of Albany in upstate New York. Uh, my parents are, they are both deceased now, but uh, were part of a very cohesive uh, Jewish community up there of uh, fairly devout people. Uh, conservative and modern Orthodox Jews uh, in that area, the Tri-City area. Um, my father uh, worked in the garment industry. Um, he eventually bought a small business, a factory uh, up there, and worked very hard his whole life um, to support his family, my two sisters and and me. Um, my mother was a, a teacher for a while, and and an administrator in the government in Albany. Um, so I kind of come from the, the middle bourgeoisie, people who are uh, not very well connected or in any way, I think, privileged. Um, so I regard myself almost as kind of a working class girl, certainly as a yeoman class girl. Uh, I was attended the public schools in Troy, New York. Uh, I went to college at Yale College in the early 70s, which was when Yale was uh, just beginning to accept women. Uh, I majored in biophysics and biochemistry. I then went to Oxford uh, on a Marshall Scholarship to study philosophy, which I had gotten very interested in. I attended Harvard Medical School. Uh, I did a year of Harvard Law School and actually really uh, Law seemed very attractive to me, so I decided to continue to pursue law. Uh, I ended up at the Justice Department under the Reagan and Bush administration in an office called the Office of the Solicitor General, which handles all of the United States business before the Supreme Court of the United States. A very exciting place to be, a really wonderful shop in the Justice Department. Uh, I then started teaching law at the University of Virginia Law School, and after uh, about seven years, I moved to the University of Pennsylvania Law School. So I have been an appellate practitioner, I have worked in medicine, and I have been an academic, a legal academic. Go back to what you said about uh, being a part of the bourgeoisie. What does that word mean? Well, I've had reason to think hard about what that word means, because Part of the reason that I've become infamous, or infamous in my small way, is that I published an op-ed about so-called bourgeois values. Uh, my understanding of bourgeois values is a set of precepts or habits or guidelines that middle-class people uh, in the West, and especially in the Anglosphere, have developed as an ethos, a code, and a set of practices uh, which is suited to democratic capitalism. Uh, one could make a list of uh, the bourgeois virtues and values, and I feel that my family uh, was very self-consciously um, invested in those values. They were adherents, I guess you could say, uh, including, you know, hard, being hardworking, being law-abiding, 
uh, trustworthiness, frugality, honesty, punctuality, uh, restraint, prudence, uh, all of these these good things that make for flourishing within a particular context, uh, which is ours. When you talk about your parents, how, where did they come from originally, or the family come from? They came from Eastern Europe. Uh, they were um, immigrants during the first part of the 20th century, part of that wave of Jewish immigration from Russia and Eastern Europe. But as someone who has a lot of education, where, <clears throat> when did you get originally interested in learning? Well, I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in learning. Um, my parents were uh, not super well educated. My mother did eventually get a college degree. Um, my father worked for an associate degree at night, but certainly they didn't start out their life uh, terribly well educated, but they clearly revered uh, learning uh, and a certain kind of intellectual rigor and honesty uh, a, a searching approach to the truth, to empiricism, to facts and arguments and logic. That was their modus operandi, the way that they approached the world. Uh, and also a reverence for uh, all of the high achievements of civilization in art, in music, in literature. Uh, so I, I recall very distinctly that attitude being imparted to me in all sorts of ways, big and small. When you went to Yale, what did you study for your undergrad? Well, I majored in science. I majored in something called molecular biophysics and biochemistry, which was an interdisciplinary major. Uh, but I also studied a lot of philosophy, of literature, uh, of history. Um, I really tried quite self-consciously and deliberately to be broadly educated, to uh, familiarize myself with um, the Western canon, I guess you could say, my heritage, my tradition. Uh, one of my favorite courses in college was Victorian poetry, which was really about so much more than Victorian poetry. Uh, and I recently mentioned to a friend of mine who's an Englishman and quite literate a poem by um, Alfred Lord Tennyson called Mariana, which he said he'd never heard of. He said, I out-Tennysoned him uh, <laughs> about this poem. So, um, I, you know, I was, I remember putting an enormous amount of effort into familiarizing myself with the best that had been thought and done. And I was quite curious about it. I wanted to know what the great ideas and achievements were, uh, wholly apart from getting just a, a very rigorous scientific education. At the end of your Yale, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, my throat's not clear. At the end of your Yale experience, what did you do right after that? I went to Oxford um, to study at Oxford. What did you study? I studied philosophy. Um, Philosophy, Physiology, and Psychology, a new program, undergraduate program that had just been launched at Oxford called PPP. Uh, I did another undergraduate um, course, 
and all of this was by way of trying to decide whether I should continue on in science or go off in another direction, perhaps, perhaps study philosophy. I did ultimately decide to continue on to medicine, although that's not what I ended up doing at the end of the day. I guess you could say I drifted off into uh, another area, um, really by way of the Justice Department. Uh, Could you, uh, did you get your medical degree? I did. Mm-hmm. Neurology? In neuro- and I trained in neurology. And so you could have been a neurologist? Absolutely. And that was certainly an option for me. When did you uh, give that up and why? Well, it was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's, it's hard for me to reconstruct exactly why. Uh, I think the main reason is that I was temperamentally not terribly well suited to the practice of medicine. You know, what you learn uh, when you start out in one field and end up in another uh, is that the reasons why one field is suitable to you and others may not be or another may not be can often be a rather humble reason, like just your personality or the kind of person that you are, uh, what floats your boat, what you look forward to when you wake up in the morning, your temperament. Uh, I was not really a people person. I was more of an idea person, which doesn't mean that I don't enjoy people, but I don't think I get the kind of pleasure and satisfaction from helping people that maybe we associate with, you know, the female persona, that's a hoary cliche, of course, because there are many men who are that way and there are many women who are not. Um, So I found that law was more compelling and satisfying for me. And it's interesting because uh, it helps me advise young people that I have done both things, young people who are trying to decide, often grappling with uh, decisions about which direction they should go in. and. In many cases, it's under parental pressure. There is, there is familial and parental pressure to enter one field rather than the other, something that I myself felt when I was younger. Uh, so I am entirely sympathetic to what they're going through, and I try to help them make the decision uh, by asking some very simple questions about themselves, you know, and what they like, what they enjoy, moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour. Uh, And every field involves tedium. Every field uh, has its aggravations, its irritations, and its challenges. The question is which irritations you find least irritating, and then, of course, what compensations you find most compensating. So that's a a very complicated calculus. And I think 20, 21-year-olds they're really not always equipped to make those decisions. So you got your medical degree from? Harvard. Did you ever practice medicine? I did, actually. uh, I did a residency in neurology. When I decided to return to law school and complete my law degree, uh, I faced the challenge of, you know, paying my tuition. By then, this period of exploding tuition had started to take off. You probably are aware that the cost of higher education and graduate education has increased dramatically. Uh, So it was already the 1980s, uh, and I had to work part-time to put myself through law school 
So I did work in clinics in uh, the South Bronx and in Brooklyn, uh, HMOs actually, the, for some of the fledgling HMOs, to help put myself through finish Columbia Law School. So, so your degree in law is from Columbia? Yes, I transferred to Columbia because I had married uh, someone who was working in New York at the time. What was your experience as being a clerk to Abner Mikva, the former congressman from Illinois? Right. And counsel to Bill Clinton? What was mm-hmm. that like? Well, it was wonderful. He's a terrific person, uh, a, a great judge, um, was, was very nice to his clerks, uh, the highest intellectual caliber, and of course my co-clerks were also uh, wonderful as well. So I thoroughly enjoyed that experience. Um, I don't think he and I were necessarily saw eye to eye politically, uh, although at that point in my life, that was back in the 80s, 87, 88, I guess I was there, um, I wasn't, you know, particularly politically aware. Uh, I, I didn't think about politics all that much. And I think the general atmosphere was less polarized, far less polarized than it is now. So judges and clerks didn't really have to match up. There was no feeling that, you know, clerks had to be on the same page, had the same ideas. The notion was that law was this autonomous field uh, that should be depoliticized as much as possible. Uh, and that was the right way to do it. Uh, so we got along just fine, uh, and I, I have, uh, I, I enjoyed that experience. That was the year, actually, that Bork was nominated and was going through his hearings. And little-known fact that Bork, who was on the D.C. Circuit at the time that he was nominated, and so was that Mikva. And so was that Mikva. So they were both on the same court, and Bork still was hearing cases. Uh, were very close friends. They had gone to law school together at Chicago. Uh, and so Bork was frequently in the office consulting with Abmikva about the whole ordeal that he was going through. Uh, we, of course, the clerks were not privy to these conversations, but uh, it was striking that um, they clearly were very close friends and Robert Bork trusted Abmikva, his wisdom and his acumen and his advice. So how did you get your job in the Solicitor General's office of the, which, which president? It was Reagan, and Charles Freed was the Solicitor General at the time. This was towards the end of his tenure as the Solicitor General that I was hired. Um, I had been, I had lucked into a summer internship at the Solicitor General's office while I was at Columbia Law School. Um, I had a professor who was a visiting professor from Chicago. He's a rather famous. His name is Cass Sunstein and pro- prolific. I had taken a couple of courses with him. He had said to me, um, it's clear that you love to argue. He said, you should really think about doing an internship at the Justice Department and the Solicitor General's office because, of course, the Solicitor General is the master litigator for the United States government and everybody in the office is devoted to that mission. Um, And I applied and I got the job. So I spent a summer there at the SG's office, as it's known. I got to know Charles Freed. I got to know the people in the office and 
they asked me to come back on the permanent staff uh, after my clerkship was over. Uh, so I was, it was quite a challenge because I was very green. I was a newly minted lawyer. I really didn't have a lot of experience. I didn't have any litigation experience, so I, it was uh, a little reckless on Charles Reed's part, but um, I, I learned the ropes. I uh, argued 15 cases before the court during my tenure there. I wrote briefs and participated in all of the activities, and I really, it was uh, the, the most wonderful, the best years of my life. I, I can honestly say that. The people there were really wonderful all around. They were the smartest people I've ever worked with. They were people of very high integrity. The office is uh, has a collegial atmosphere like none other. Uh, we're all involved in a mutual endeavor, which is to do our very best for the government uh, before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court trusts the Solicitor General's office, and the office tries to repay that high trust, and I think that they do. So 15 times you argued before the Supreme yes. Court. Do you remember the first time, and what was it like? Yes, I do. <laughs> um, it was actually quite exhilarating, I think, because uh, it's a grand privilege to argue before the Supreme Court. Not very many people get to do it. It was a, a rather humble case involving a technical question of, um, so, um, of Social Security benefits, uh, and how the government collects and refunds Social Security benefits, but obviously very, very important to many people because the Social Security program is enormous. It's massive. So a lot of money was involved. Um, what struck me about the experience was uh, that it is a very intimate one. Uh, the courtroom is relatively small. The advocates are right up in front of you know, the bench of nine. In fact, one of the challenges is that you're so close that it's very hard to see all the justices at once. You have to, to kind of turn your head and make sure that you've, you're monitoring the situation. Um, and it's really, it's a performance. That's the other thing you realize is it, it is a great um, training ground for any kind of performance that you will ever have to deliver uh, and anything in your past life that involved performance uh, is preparation for it. So when I was an adolescent in Troy and in high school I was on the piano competition circuit. I was something of a amateur pianist uh, certainly not of the highest rank but good enough to um, participate in these competitions and occasionally win a competition. Uh, and I drew on that experience the most, I think, in preparing to argue before the Supreme Court because there is this trajectory of focus, of concentration, of preparation, uh, of developing knowledge and expertise about what you're, of, of getting comfortable uh, with what you're about to do, um, that of foresight and forethought, that really ha it's a common feature among any kind of performance that you're preparing for uh, and planning. You know, you're supposed to sound spontaneous, but in fact, if you haven't planned every answer to every question, if you're at all surprised, then you've fallen short.
in your preparation to argue before the Supreme Court. How long have you been teaching at the University of Pennsylvania? Since 2001. Where is it? Mm-hmm. It's in Philadelphia. It's actually in West Philadelphia. Uh, it's a private university in West, West Philadelphia. Considered one of the Ivy Leagues. It is an Ivy League school, yes. How many students and how many professors at the law school? Oh, students, I don't know the precise number. I think it's on the smaller side for um, elite law schools. I think it's something like, oh, maybe 700, 600. That's, that may not be quite That's accurate. what it says on the Wikipedia yeah, site. Yeah, that's my guess. Uh, and then for professors, we actually have a relatively small faculty. I think we have 50 tenure, tenure track, full-time faculty. And we also have many adjuncts. We have many people from the community, the law community in Philly, which is uh, quite a distinguished one, uh, teaching part-time uh, various courses at our law school. With that background, let me get to the reason that we ask you to come talk. Mm-hmm. This is March 18th, 2018, this year. It's written by Heather McDonald, who's with the Manhattan Institute. And the headline on it is, The Penn Law School Mob Scores a Victory. And just let me read the first paragraph. The campus mob at the University of Pennsylvania Law School has scored a hit. Professor Amy Wax will no longer be allowed to teach required first-year courses, the school's dean announced last week. I'll stop there. What's that about? Well, there's a there's a whole saga that leads up to it. I uh, could try to give you the short form. I, um, I still haven't figured it all out entirely because uh, I think it, it ties into some broader themes of what's happening to our society generally and to the university sector in particular. Uh, but I think it all began... Um, back last August 9th when I co-published a little innocuous op-ed in the Inquirer, the Philadelphia Inquirer, or so I regarded it, uh, called Paying the Price for the Breakdown of the Country's Bourgeois Values. And in it, um, my co-author Larry Alexander and I talked about this bourgeois script that I had mentioned to you, um, some basic precepts of behavior and how the loss of common fealty and adherence to those behaviors as the hallmark of mature adulthood, uh, which we had identified as taking place over the past 30 or 40 years in our country, uh, and the concomitant resulting change in behavior had, we thought, um, inflicted uh, some damage on our country, not being, of course, the only thing that happened, but something that uh, was important, uh, that standard, in effect that standards of behavior had declined and that uh, all of us were paying the price for that uh, in various ways. And some of the behaviors we talked about was respect for law, uh, criminality, which has leveled off to some extent, although there's a question of whether the figures are accurate, but certainly saw a tremendous surge in the 60s and 70s to much higher levels than have prevailed before. Um, the lower work effort that is being put in by some segments of the American society, such as prime-age men, um, breakdown in the family, of course, that many children in, in some 
um, in some quarters, most children are born out of wedlock. They're not raised in intact families. Uh, that uh, people um, have, you know, used profanity quite liberally. That patriotism is out of fashion. Uh, that there's um, an adversarial relationship very often between employers and employees. I mean, we we sort of made a list, and we should have added the decline in thrift and frugality, which is quite dramatic. Um, and all of these put together um, have we've taken a hit from it. When did um, you, you say you first published it in the Philadelphia Inquirer? What <clears throat> happened? When did it surface again? Well, we also said in the in that piece, and I think this is what ruffled a lot of people. Um, that not all cultures are alike. We were trying to tout this code of behavior as being one that was particularly functional and suited to our current technological uh, democratic capitalist society and comparing it to other cultures um, which, you know, aren't as functional. We, we gave some examples, uh, and that immediately caused a firestorm the very next day. Uh, there were protests and petitions. You know, social media really contributed so much to this, I think. Um, people were going to my dean and objecting and saying that this was white supremacist talk, racist talk, xenophobic, putting all sorts of labels on it. A group of graduate students issued a statement condemning me. Uh, a bunch of professors at Drexel and Temple signed a statement condemning the op-ed as unacceptable, as injurious, as harmful, as racist. Um, I gave an interview to the Daily Pennsylvanian, quite unwisely, the next day, and that added fuel to the fire. That was the student newspaper. That added fuel to the fire uh, because the interviewer um, basically accused me of being a white supremacist and saying that, you know, whites were superior, I said, well, no, I'm, I very naively tried to correct him and say that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that a certain culture that came out of a European heritage, really an Anglo-Saxon heritage, the Anglosphere, was our heritage and a highly functional heritage. And, you know, the functional superiority of it is measured by the fact that Everybody wants to live in Europe. You know, migrants flock to Europe, not to Venezuela, not to Southeast Asia. Um, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. We've, we've discovered something. We've worked something out, which works really well. And this came out as, you know, Europeans are superior because migrants want to go to Europe, which actually is not that far from what I was saying, but many people found extremely offensive in the current climate. As my husband said, you push the Western sieve button. What I learned is that one is not allowed to praise the achievements of uh, the West. That has become uh, a suspect move uh, in, in the intellectual game. And that is what people objected to. Um, as far as I could tell, I mean, I'm not entirely sure because I don't, I'm not of that mindset. This was back in August of 2017. I'm looking at the Daily Pennsylvania from August the 20th. 
2017. And there's a Dorothy Roberts, a Sarah Berenger Gordon, <clears throat> a Serena Mayeri, yes, uh, Sophia Z. Lee, Tobias Barrington Wolf. Who are they? Those are my colleagues. They're and they pu- actually published a piece. There were multiple pieces published and letters and protests published. That piece was actually an attempt by four historians on the faculty to write a substantive response to our piece. I didn't object to that piece. I didn't agree with it at all. I thought it was the the argument was uh, transparently fallacious. But they argued that um, praising bourgeois culture and the 1950s, which was sort of the high watermark of it, or one of them in our country, was... Um, they objected to that. As far as I could reproduce their argument, their argument was you can't praise the 50s because the 50s were a time of uh, patriarchy, racism, sexism, mistreatment of minorities. Terrible things happened during the 50s. Discrimination was rampant. Uh, and ergo, there was nothing good about it. Now, I consider that a complete non sequitur. They seem to be making an argument like the only reason the 50s were good for the people it was good for is because they they mistreated all these other people, which is a very strange argument to make. You know, we have if we stop mistreating people, things won't be as good. I, I don't know what they were trying to get out there. Let, let me let me just for the purpose <clears throat> yeah. of this discussion, let me read <clears throat> what they said, some of what they said. Nostalgia for the 1950s breezes over the truth of inequality and exclusion. The racial discrimination, in quotes, and the limited sex roles, in quotes, that the authors identify as imperfections in mid-century American life were in fact core features of it. Exclusion and discrimination against people of color was the norm, North and South. During this period, home ownership, high-quality education, jobs with fair pay and decent working conditions, and the social insurance benefits of the New Deal welfare state remain unavailable by design to most non-white Americans. Okay, well, I mean, as a factual depiction of the 50s, that is accurate. And we actually said in our op-ed that, you know, there were... Um, detriments, there were flaws in that period which have since been corrected. But what they seem to be saying, which, you know, I disagree with, is that those were core in the sense that the bourgeois virtues and the ability and willingness to practice bourgeois virtues was somehow dependent on keeping all of these people down. Now, that is a very odd argument, and I don't agree with it. You know, the the virtues of the period and the vices of the period were not inextricably linked in the way that that piece suggests. It is entirely possible, in my mind, to revive and practice some of the virtuous behaviors and cycles that we associate with the 50s without attaching to it the kind of discrimination uh, inequality and bigotry that the period also exemplified. And there's you can point to an example. So let's take an example. Just in the area of family breakdown, right? The upper middle class today, whites, Asians mainly, because minorities have always had weaker families, uh, they, in effect, 
have 50s type family patterns, right? They talk the 60s, but they live the 50s. They're married at a very high rate. Their marriages endure. Their children disproportionately grow up in traditional two-parent families. They're highly conventional in the way that they conduct their family lives relative to the rest of society. They're kind of this little bastion of the 50s. They marry later, and they marry after a period of sexual experimentation, and that is a change from the 50s. But, you know, they also believe in diversity and inclusion. They abhor bigotry. They're on board uh, with the abolition of all forms of nefarious discrimination and sexism uh, that we have effectuated both culturally and legally. So that's an example of being able to have it both ways. I think this op-ed is saying you can't have it both ways. Why not? After the Pennsylvanian published, uh, the University of Pennsylvania newspaper published uh, these stories and all, when did it hit the Wall Street Journal? And they published your remarks there. Well, I... um, wrote an op-ed for them. Uh, It was a couple of months after this initially unfolded. What happened was uh, this this started up. It spread like wildfire. A lot of people wrote about it. Um, There were a lot of comments. There was a a very critical event, uh, which was something of a watershed, which was that 33 of my colleagues at Penn Law signed a letter also in the school newspaper, the Daily Pennsylvanian, uh, condemning and categorically rejecting all of my claims and statements, condemning everything that I had said, I guess, in this op-ed, and subsequently uh, categorically rejecting everything I said. Um, No argument, no reasons given, uh, no logic to it, just an outright bald condemnation and categorical rejection. 33. 33. And it was instigated by uh, one person in particular. And I really reacted to that very negatively. I thought this was a fundamental betrayal of academic values. Uh, And I don't use the term free speech because I think that is the wrong term. It's the wrong term for a number of reasons. First of all, the free speech rights that we all value so much do not apply against private institutions, and people forget that. Pens of private Congress, institutions. Yes, Congress shall make no law, and public institutions have to adhere to a free speech code. Private institutions can fire you for saying anything they want. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the way that it, the railroad has always been run. We have this employment at will. Um, so technically, I really have no free speech rights. I have tenure. That's something different. Um, and they have the free speech right to categorically reject all my claims. And the students have the right to call me a racist and a sexist and a xenophobe and, you know, a white supremacist. I mean, this is not a matter of rights. So what happened on a personal basis after this happened? What was it like in the hallways of Penn Law School for you? Well, it was, uh, I think... First of all, you know, the 33 people who signed it uh, didn't necessarily treat me in a friendly way. What's striking is that none of them uh, came to talk to me about why they signed it. Uh, and after it was released, I, it was released with very little notice to me. There was It was all done in secrecy. Uh, it was... Uh, 
there was not any forthrightness about it. Um, in fact, it was formulated and circulated uh, in a way that was designed to keep me from knowing about it, so that in itself is telling. Uh, and after it was published, uh, no one, one or two people, one person, came to explain to me why he signed it. And, you know, it became immediately apparent that he didn't really categorically reject all my claims. He didn't really, you know, disagree with every darn thing that we had said in the op-ed. I mean, how could they, you know? They raised their own children this way. I mean, the hypocrisy here is stunning. Uh, the inconsistency here is is incredible. But one person came and said, "Well, what you said it was it was sort of Nazi talk." These these were very crude rationales for signing a condemnation. What uh, about the professor that you ran into? Uh, I saw it in one of the articles uh, after the summer, and you asked, uh, "What kind of a summer did you have?" And he, you can tell that story. Well. After this condemnation and a number of conversations that I had had, the few conversations I had had uh, with people on the faculty that were very hostile, very negative towards what I had written, um, I decided that I would write a piece for the Wall Street Journal. Actually, I initially gave it as a speech, an invited speech, to uh, Hillsdale College. They have a center here, a Kearney Center for Constitutional Rights. So they asked me to give a talk, and I recounted my experience and why I thought that people had behaved inappropriately uh, in an academic setting, given what the academy is supposed to stand for and how they are supposed to conduct themselves, that uh, this whole saga fell far short of that standard. Um, and someone who read that piece said, sent it to the Wall Street Journal and said, you really should publish this because it is a very down-to-earth, blow-by-blow, particularized account of what is going on all around the country, the kinds of responses that um, unorthodox, what's considered a deviation from the progressive catechism, I guess you could say, the dogma, the, the politically correct line, uh, what kind of response it elicits nowadays more and more. Uh, so I, for, I wrote this piece for the Wall Street Journal in which I recounted my experiences surrounding this op-ed and the responses I had gotten. And some of the stories I told, the, the few conversations I had with my colleagues, one involved going up to a colleague on the street in the summer, the summer immediately after I published this, a few weeks later, uh, and greeting him and him giving me a hostile look and saying, well, actually, my summer's been terrible. And I said, why? And he said, because of you, because of your op-ed and what you wrote, which I consider an attack on our school, an attack on our students. So this language of attack, of harm, of damage, that by expressing an opinion that people don't like... Uh, you have inflicted an injury. I found that very uh, striking and, frankly, rather frightening, if the truth be told, and quite emblematic of the way that the left is now responding uh, to any sort of dissent, and especially one that, that trenches on identity, grievance, politics, which, of course, is everywhere, and has infected everything. Go back to the dean. 
And what is the dean, and what kind of power does the dean have? Well, his response to the op-ed was to immediately announce through his spokesperson that, you know, my opinions were not endorsed by the law school, which should be understood. And also he saw fit to publish his own op-ed saying, you know, we reject, I reject the position that one culture is better than all others, which of course is completely unresponsive to what we said and a distortion of what we said. And that has been a hallmark of this entire saga, has been selective quotation, distortion, restatement, dishonesty of that sort. But in terms of his power, um, he has the power to assign courses to me and uh, control what I teach and my schedule and the like. I mean, he has a fair amount of power to um, to control my professional life. What he doesn't have the power to do is fire me entirely because I have tenure. And according to the rules of the professional organization, uh, that we're a member of, I guess, the American uh, University Professors Society, the Association of American Law Schools, and all of these. Um, I have to continue to be employed, and I have to continue to be paid uh, my my salary, at least my base salary. And the only grounds on which I can be fired, uh, I think, are... Um, professional misconduct, egregious professional misconduct, uh, or various forms of criminal behavior. <laughs> so, so, so what did he do to, how did, how did he level a penalty on you? Well, in the immediate aftermath of my initial article, he resisted many calls to both strip me of first-year mandatory classes and fire me as a general matter. I think the reason that mandatory classes became the pressure point is that students are assigned to a particular professor in the first year of law school. There is a fixed curriculum of courses that students have to take, and they are basically told what they have to take and who's going to be teaching it. So that is an exception to the rule in academia that students get to pick what they want to take and the like. I mean, obviously, there are requirements as undergraduates as well, but a lot more leeway in deciding who your teacher is going to be. So the first, you know, the students thought, well, we shouldn't be required to sit in this woman's classroom. Students shouldn't uh, have to be taught by her because she is clearly a racist and it is harmful, it is uncomfortable, it is damaging. Once again, that language, right, subjective, emotional harm, trauma, this language that all the students have learned to use, of a psychologizing, of um, pedagogy, um, that's damaging to us. So a lot of pressure to take me out of the first year. He initially resisted that pressure, I think in part because, you know, I am a good civil procedure professor. I'm one of three professors in the entire law school who've gotten a university-wide teaching award, got something called the Limbach Prize a couple of years back. Um, I get very high ratings as a professor, and maybe that was part of the motivation. I don't know. But there was a denouement, which is that the students, especially the Black Law Students Association, uh, really set their face against me 
and they went on a trolling operation to look back through my entire record to find something that would get me removed or fired. And what they found was this five minutes of an interview I had with Glenn Lowry. Let's wa- let's uh, watch back it back in September. This is forty-eight seconds, right. but this is September the tenth. This 10th. was my this was my <clears throat> fireable offense here. Glenn Glenn Lowry uh, runs this uh, blocking blogging heads TV show right. that you were on, and you mm-hmm. were in this. You were at at Penn. When, yeah, and I've been on it several times. Yeah. I'm one of the guests on his blogging heads. And people can get on bloggingheads.tv and, and watch any of these things. Let's, let's just watch the 48 seconds. I mean, take, you know, Penn Law School or some top 10 law school. You know, here's a very inconvenient fact, Glenn. I, I don't think I've ever seen a black student graduate in the top quarter of the class and rarely, rarely in the top half. I can think of one or two students who've scored in the top half in my required first year course. Well, what are we supposed to do about that? That you're really, um, you're, you're putting in front of this person a real uphill battle. And if they were better matched, uh, it might be a better environment for them. That's the mismatch hypothesis, of course. We're not saying they shouldn't go to college. We're not saying that. Do you I mean, have some, um, of should, some of them shouldn't? What do you mean by better match? Well, I mean that their incoming credentials, uh, law school admission test score, and GPA—that is college grade average—which are the main parameters and criteria that admissions officers use for law school admissions. And law school admissions is highly quantitative or has been until very recently, um, the minority students, underrepresented minority students at top law schools, let's say the top 10, uh, their numbers are significantly lower than the numbers of other students who get admitted and come to the law school. There is a, a gap when uh, you grade When you grade somebody in your law mm-hmm. class, do you know when they write... The old days, there used to be blue books that you'd write in, and know, the professor wouldn't know who it was. I gather. And do you do you know? No. In the first year, which of course those are the critical grades and and by far the most important grades, uh, we have blind grading. It's called blind grading, and that means that the students are assigned a number. Uh, they write the number on their exam or their blue book, and I actually give an objective exam right now. I used to give a essay exam, and I found that if I asked multiple choice or shorter questions. I still got the same distribution. That that was a very good test of knowledge and of how much, how hard the student have studied, how much they had learned. Uh, I have no idea who I am assigning a particular grade to when I assign it. I give it to the registrar. She registers the grades and then she unblinds the list. I find out after the fact who got what grade, but at that point, I cannot change the grade. And the reason that they're unblinded for us, for the professors, of course, is because we are in the position of being asked to recommend students to tell employers and prospective employers and judges and various organizations that are hiring these people how they did uh, in our class. We have to write recommendations. 
Uh, and if we request it, but we have to request it, we will. We are even given their rank in class. There are some judges, the most elite and sought after, who want to know where the students rank in the class. And the school does not publish the grades or, or the ranking of any of the students in law, in Penn Law School? No, they're in, they have become increasingly secretive about the grades. You know, back when I was at Harvard Law School uh, in ancient times, uh, I mean, the grades were posted. We Everybody, the rank in class was an open uh, information. The law review was determined strictly by rank in class. Um, our grades were not you know, confidential, or they weren't considered such. There was no open effort to to disclose them, but people thought nothing of imparting that information. I need to get Glenn Lowry's response to you from that same interview. It's another 40-some seconds. Uh, do, do you have a racial diversity mandate for law review appointments at uh, Penn? Yes, yes. So you're telling me that um, uh, students of color who have served on law review are uh, pretty much uh, uh, in the bottom half of their law classes at Penn? I, I would have to what I know. I mean, I haven't done a survey. I haven't done a systematic study. I'm, I'm talking about uh, yeah. who gets the honor. I have a big, you know, I have a class of 89, 95 students every year. So I see a big chunk of students every year. Uh, and I, so I, I, I'm going on that because a lot of this data is, of course, a, a closely guarded secret, as you can imagine. Sure. Well, you, what's the solution to what you're talking about? Well, I mean, first you have to decide there's a problem. And I think... Does anybody the, think there's a problem, by the way? One of the distortions that's come out of this little tiny clip, right, which is completely taken out of context is the conclusion that I am, you know, completely adamantly and totally against affirmative action and that I have some kind of crusade going about that. Well, I don't. I mean, my attitude towards affirmative action, like any good small-c conservative, is it has pros, it has cons, it has costs, it has benefits. Um, It's We're not going to bring about utopia because... Every benefit has, you know, every upside has a downside. My view is if we're going to have this kind of social engineering, which is what it is, if we're going to have this policy, uh, we should at least be honest about it and evaluate it on, on the facts. And it used to be that when people discussed affirmative action and thought about it, whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, they were pretty forthright about the facts. Now, they've doubled down and tripled down and decided that even discussing the facts, the actual questions of disparities of academic achievement going in and the resulting academic achievement that comes out of it, performance beyond school for affirmative action admits that all of these subjects are verboten. To even talk about them is racist. So that involves you in this bizarre... So we've, we've gotten ourselves into this situation of denial as a test of moral virtue. So this involves us in some bizarre contradictions. 
I've been talking about this around the country. On the one hand, every good person believes in affirmative action. If you are against affirmative action for underperforming minorities, and we know who we're talking about here, we're talking about blacks, to some extent Hispanics, because Asians don't need affirmative action, Indians don't need affirmative action, other ethnic groups are doing very well, because they're doing very well, and in some cases they're doing better than than uh, you know the the majority white population on standard measures of academic achievement. Uh, we're talking about underperforming minorities. You have you have to be for affirmative action, but if you get down to discussing why we need affirmative action, which is that um, blacks and Hispanics lag behind in test scores, in academic knowledge, in academic performance. Even mentioning that is dangerous uh, because that's considered an insult to students, a denigration, putting them down, uh, an attack, which I consider bizarre. It's not an attack. It's a report. Um, And then to talk about once they get to a very competitive institution, how do they do? Uh, is their performance catching up or does it continue to lag behind? Uh, does the myth of affirmative action, which is the minute you get there, everything is fine, does that myth, is it a myth or does it actually occur? Uh, is there magic dirt for these institutions where we just bring people in and all of their deficits are erased? Uh, you certainly can't talk about that. It, it's weird that the dean, you know, says on the one hand, everything she's saying is false. Everything I'm saying is false. I have a whole filing cabinet of my grades in civil procedure from 20 years, and I am going to sit here and tell you what I said about the performance of black students in my class for the past 20 years is not false. All right. I don't know about the rest of the school. As I admitted, I'm not really privy to this information because it is kept secret, right? But on the other hand, he says, we don't keep records by race. We don't even have this information. So we can't possibly disclose it. Well, do you believe it? There is a contradiction there. There is a con- but no one has called him on that contradiction. So no, I do happens, not believe that. What happens? You do not believe that they don't know. That they could I believe that they could easily compile that information. So this fall, are you going back to the University of Pennsylvania and what classes are you allowed to teach now? I have no idea what classes I'll be teaching because the dean has not spoken to me since March 18th when he issued an email to the entire Penn community saying he was stripping me of my first year teaching responsibilities. I have just become, you know, persona non grata pretty much. Why do you stay there? Well, I have a very good job and uh, (laughs) they pay me very well. And the other reason I stay is, uh, you know, I get to write and think, and uh, I have a lot of projects underway right now. And there is a there is a core of students I think who I'm very important to. Would you expect any student to boycott your classes in the fall? Yes, I think that is definitely going to occur. On the other hand, uh, I teach. Uh, I teach two classes, one of which is a seminar in conservative political and legal thought, uh, for which there was a waiting this list this year. Uh, so there, there are students at Penn Law who are hungry for 
uh, a broader exposure to a range of ideas which are more and more systematically excluded from the elite academy. Out of the 50 professors, the full-time professors in the law school, how many of them are conservative? At this point, uh, well, conservative, you know, is a a rather muzzy concept. Um, How many are right of center? Right of center, maybe four. Is there any concern at the law school in the dean's office about a balance when it comes to thought? No, I think that the... The dean, I'm, I don't want to speak for the dean, but I would say that um, many of people on the faculty uh, think that purging the faculty of people who don't subscribe to hardline progressive ideas, except maybe in the economic sphere where they're willing to tolerate a little bit more range of opinion, uh, that purging um, a lot of so-called right-wing ideas is is a great thing because those ideas are errant. They are wrong and they are morally suspect. Not only are they false, but they're immoral. I mean, this is a new era that we have now that uh, opinion has become moralized uh, and dissent is a, a kind of insult or an assault or an attack. So we have a whole new rhetorical universe Right, in which um, moralization and the language of harm has become the language of discourse in ideas. Amy Wax is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania. She also has a medical degree in neurology. And all of what we've talked about today is online. You can find it through Google, among other places, all of your, your uh, op-ed pieces. And we thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qnda.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts.